0: So we are this morning in Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Luke 22, 1 through 6. This is um, one of those sermons that I feel like is very important. It's one that you don't hear much about. It's a character that is seldom addressed in the scripture. It's Judas Iscariot. But Judas Iscariot is one of the great negative examples in the Bible. We have positive examples in the Bible of people that we ought to be like and then we have negative examples of people that we must never be like. And Judas Iscariot is probably the single greatest example of what we never, want to be like when we see the things in his life we must look at these things and be warned by them and turned away from them and what is so specific and unusual about the life of Judas is that we get to see behind the scenes we get to see not only his actions but explanations for his actions and what is happening in his heart progressively over time and so there are tremendous lessons for us this morning and I'm gonna do the best I can to give you an understanding of the life of Judas in this sermon this morning. So let's begin by reading our passage of scripture. If you would please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So who is Judas Iscariot? He was one of the twelve called as as disciples in the beginning. And of the 12, it's interesting that from the beginning, Jesus does not make a mistake with Judas. It's not that something happened here that Jesus didn't foresee. Early on in John chapter 6, Jesus says, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And he knew the heart of Judas and what was there then and what was going to come in the future. And he stands as an example as we will see this morning. There's one, only one really significant prior example of Judas in the scriptures as to his actions, and that is in John chapter 12, and it's after this... uh, incredible event where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And one of Lazarus's sisters, Mary, after he's been raised from the dead, and they gather together to have this great feast to celebrate Jesus and this incredible event that has happened. Mary comes in with a pound of nard, which is very expensive perfume, and anoints Jesus with it in an act of worship. And Judas is upset with it, and he says, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? But we have the footnote of the backdrop. It says that Judas didn't care a thing about the poor. It says that instead, he wanted to steal from the money bag. He was the one that had the money bag, and he would dip into it and steal for himself. And he's thinking, man, look at all this money. It was wasted on the worship of Jesus Christ. And instead, it could have been put in the money bag, and I could have stolen from from it to enrich myself. And so his heart is corrupt, after seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, seeing this outpouring of love and worship by these sisters, what is his thoughts? Where, where is his heart? His heart is with the love of money. He sees it all in terms of money and sees nothing of the worship of Jesus Christ. And so what was different about Judas than the other 12 disciples. And in thinking this week, I've been trying to distill down, you know, what is the essence of what is different between Judas and these other twelve, these other 11 people? And I believe without a doubt, the essence is that his heart was not for the Lord. Okay? The Lord God says and calls for us, commands that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Judas did not have a heart for the Lord. Judas did not love the Lord. Judas did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And so his heart was different from the other 11. The other 11 struggled to understand who Jesus was and it took time, it actually took years for them to get to the place where they finally fully understood who Jesus was and were strengthened by God's spirit to fully enter into belief. And yet they were always going in that direction. But Judas, not so. His heart was wrong, his heart was unbelieving. Not his actions though, so it's very interesting. We get no indication in the the Gospels that Judas stood out from the rest. I mean when we get to the Passover table at the end and Jesus says one of you is gonna betray me, what's the reaction? They don't all turn and point at Judas like, it's got to be that guy. I knew it all along. That is not what happens. They look around the table and they say, is it I, Lord? Is is it I? He is such a convincing deceiver with his outward actions that they have no idea what is actually going on in his heart. But I want us to understand this morning, every single one of us, that every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room has a trajectory of your heart. Your heart is either going toward belief and going toward seeking after the Lord. You are either softening towards the Lord, learning of Christ, believing, hoping in Him, and going in a direction that is seeking after Christ, or your heart is hardening. And as your heart hardens, you are accusing, you are doubting, you are rebellious. And the further you go down this path, the further and further you get away from the Lord. There is no such thing as a neutral state or a truly agnostic state. Jesus is very clear. If you have not believed in him, then you are unbelieving. You are either believing or you are unbelieving. And there is no middle ground. And so Judas, for all that was given to him, was an unbeliever. Three years with Jesus, under the greatest teaching that any human being could ever experience at the literal feet of Jesus, in the big crowds, in the small crowds, having the parables explained to them, having every possible amount of teaching that any person could ever get. He's like, no, I don't believe any of that. This is ridiculous. Uh, My heart is hard towards it. Every miracle that could be imagined is done before him by Jesus, the Son of God. And instead of softening his heart, his heart hardens. Fellowship, community, what greater community than walking in community in the near circle of Jesus in the fellowship of the disciples? But even then, the love of other brothers does nothing to soften his heart. And so when we look at Mark, Mark chapter 7, verse 6, oh, I didn't mark it, so I'm going to have to I'm gonna look it up here. Give me one second. Uh, mark chapter 7, verse 6, is an important quotation from Isaiah. And one that we should all hear. Jesus says this, Well did Isaiah prophesy to you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So this is not a new idea. Isaiah said this a long time ago about the people of Israel. And now he's saying it to these religious leaders. And it is especially true of Judas. He honors Jesus with his lips. He's saying the right things. He's acting in certain ways that are right, but his heart is far from Jesus. It's nowhere near him. He's not going in the right direction. He's going in the wrong direction, and it is taking him toward hardness. So Judas was a masterful deceiver, and we're gonna see that as he is deceiving and working a web of deception, that he is, in the end, entered into by who? The great deceiver, who, who, ma- who furthers this deception and empowers it even further. But what is so interesting about this situation with Judas is that there were only two people that knew the true nature of Judas's heart. It was Judas and who? Jesus. They're the only two people that really knew the nature of his heart. I do the best that I can, and the elders of this church do the best that we can to shepherd your hearts and souls and seek to understand what is really going on in your heart and minister to your heart. But at the end of the day, I cannot see the true nature of your soul. Only Jesus can, and you know. You know whether you believe that Jesus is the Son of God or not. Jesus knows whether you believe that he is the Son of God or not. When he looked at Judas across that table and said, go and do what you're going to do quickly, he knew exactly what was going on in his heart. And all along the way, he knew it as well. And so I ask you this morning, what is the direction of your heart? I'm not sure there's any greater question that I can ask you. What is the direction of your heart? Is your heart hardening and becoming more rebellious and more skeptical or is your heart softening towards the Lord and becoming more believing and more seeking and desiring more of who Christ is? Because Judas stands as a great warning to us that nearness to religious things and much religious knowledge will do us nothing, no good in the end if we do not believe these things. Just knowledge and nearness to religious things is not enough. There is a very, very powerful warning passage uh, related to apostasy in Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six, verses four through six. It's a passage that warns people And it uses very specific language, four different markers of specific language. It says this, people that were enlightened with religious knowledge, people that have tasted heavenly things, people that have shared in the Holy Spirit, people that have tasted in the goodness of the Word of God and the power of God, and yet fall away that they will not be brought back to redemption. Some people use this passage as a passage to support the idea that you can lose your salvation. But this is not what this passage is teaching. Judas is the ultimate example of what this passage is teaching. Because what we need to see, the words used in this passage, enlightened, tasted, shared, tasted, that describes Judas. Enlightenment is the idea of knowledge, the gaining of knowledge. And we can do this apart from God's Spirit. Because the Bible terminology, the word used in the Bible of gaining true understanding of Jesus is illumination. It's something that comes to us by the Holy Spirit. We cannot gain it without the Holy Spirit of God working. The idea of tasting of heaven is a person having an understanding of heaven, a concept that there is a heaven out there somewhere. But that's not the words that the scriptures use of those that are in Christ It says that by God's spirit they are sealed for an inheritance in heaven, a full belonging, a place prepared for you. Not a taste, you're there because of Christ Jesus. It talks about someone sharing in the Holy Spirit, which means he was near, he saw God's spirit at work, he saw Jesus at work. But this is not the terminology or the words specifically used in the Bible of those who come to salvation. Those words are specific. Regeneration, justification, born again. This is far beyond tasting something and seeing something at a distance. This is the full radical transformation of the heart by the work of the Lord Jesus. And lastly, tasting the things of God. This is not what we are in Christ. We are fully set free. We are redeemed by the power of God. And so Judas never experienced these these things. He gets as close as you possibly can be to it and looks at it and sees it and, and tastes it, if you will, and learns of it. But in the end, he says, I don't believe any of this. And my heart actually loves money and the things of this world. And I would rather not have the things of God. I would rather have the things of this world. He has no faith. Salvation is by faith. And he will not believe these things. And so he goes the way of the world. And has, inherits death instead of eternal life. We get to see so much of the inner workings of his heart here. That it is very powerful. Because if you look at your own heart and you see my word. Like I, I am following in this path of Judas. Judas. God, help me not to go this way. Help me to turn away from these things. May my heart not be hardened. May I not love the things of this world. And so this is a little picture of the background of Judas because this is where we pick up with him. Because we pick up with him in chapter 22. And this idea of Satan entering into Judas is not something that just happens. We pick up with a long three-year line of scheming and lying and deception and a hard heart. And it's at that point that here we are at the culmination of the ministry of Jesus Christ and five times between the gospels, the name given to Judas is the betrayer. What a horrible name. The betrayer, the one who is going to betray Jesus unto death because his enemies are seeking his death and Judas is going to be the one who gives them the opportunity to put him to death. Well, it says in verse three, then Satan entered into Judas. This is a fearful and terrible statement and one that deserves explanation and some discussing so that we don't misunderstand what is going on here. I very much believe in angels and demons and a Satan, a real devil, one who is our adversary, our spiritual adversary. But the first thing I want to do in talking about Satan is define his nature and who he is because it is very important that we get past false notions and false understandings. Satan is not co-equal with God. We don't have in Christianity this sort of yin-yang thing where God is is the light half and Satan is the evil half and they're sort of equal and they're fighting each other eternally. That is not at all what we have in the Bible. What we have in the Bible is Satan as a creature. He is under the authority of God. He is a rebellious angelic being made by God, not eternal, but a fallen and sinful spiritual being. Though powerful, he is under the authority of God, which we're gonna see more in just a moment. He is finite, which means he cannot be in all places in all times. He, he moves about in order to accomplish what he is seeking to accomplish. And we see that elsewhere in the scripture as we will see today as well as we go through the scriptures. So how does Satan operate in the world? This is very important. The one thing that is completely uh, different about God and Satan is that in the Lord Jesus there is no darkness, he is all light, he is all holiness and goodness. Satan is all evil, he is all lies, he is all a deceiver, there is no goodness in him. And so he goes about through the world as a deceiver We see it very first in the very beginning chapters of Genesis that he comes onto the scene as one deceiving and seeking to draw people away from the work of the Lord. He is one who operates a kingdom of darkness in this world, and yet it says that he is disguised as an angel of light, which is perfect for deception. If I want to draw you into something evil, I don't show something evil. It's gonna cause most of you to run away. But if I show a good, happy face and draw you into a trap and destroy you, this is what a deceiver is. And he is a deceiver. But he is also an accuser, which we're gonna see play out in this passage this morning. Because he deceives, and every one of us have understood this, where we fall to deception and we fall to temptation, which seemed so good at the moment. But as soon as we pass through that temptation, we're just crushed by guilt and then he turns around and becomes the accuser. Where he was the deceiver, now he's the accuser. Because what is he trying to do in the end? He is a destroyer. And so in Revelation 9:11 the name given to him in the end is Apollyon. And Apollyon means destroyer. He is the one that is seeking to destroy you and me. He has come to steal and to kill and to destroy and to lie. And there is nothing good at work in him. And this is the work that he is doing in the world. And this is the work that he is doing in the passage that we will see this morning. He is very active in the Gospels. We see a lot of spiritual evil in the Gospels, and it shouldn't surprise us because this was the ministry of Jesus Christ. That is the culminating or most central part of all the work of God in the Bible. Why would we not see, I would expect to see, Satan working overtime against the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the world, and that is what we see, and especially at the culmination of his ministry where Satan is thinking that he can undo and actually kill the Son of God and somehow undo the sovereign purposes of God in salvation. So we must ask also, how can Satan possess or enter in or influence someone? Is this something that we should all just be afraid of at any given time? And the answer is no, no. We need to see who Judas is and how he has come to this place. And if we look at this long history of Judas, or this brief history, I should say, of Judas that we've given to you here, it should help you understand to a certain extent how he has opened his heart to evil over time. And we need to understand that as we're going down these two various paths, either hardness or the seeking after the Lord, our heart is being opened to one thing or the other. In one way, we are opening our heart to evil. The more that we turn away from the Lord, the more that we seek after darkness, the more that we will find darkness and the more that we will find evil. And the more that we seek after the Lord Jesus Christ and the more that we long for him and pray for his presence, the more of his presence we will experience. And so Judas has had a prolonged hardness and hypocrisy and that hypocrisy and hardness has been exacerbated by the fact that he has been in the presence of Jesus himself. He has had the greatest possible opportunity for belief, and yet he responds to that in hypocrisy and hardness. And so he is not only not choosing Jesus, but he is actively choosing the love of money and the love of this world. And so this prepared, hardened, proud, love of this world heart is a wide open door for evil things to come and influence that heart. And so Satan comes to him. But it's important to contrast two characters. We're going to do this twice this morning to contrast Judas with Peter. So, Peter, what's happening with Peter? Peter's a mess in so much of the gospels. He he does things, says things that are dumb and 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 does things that don't that are out of line. And and at one point he's actually, Jesus tells him, Get thee behind me, Satan, because you have your mind on the things of this world, not on the things of God. And he's talking about how his priorities and his understanding, like Peter, you have totally missed the boat. Like you're, you're distracting me. Please don't distract me anymore. But we know that Peter has an earnest, true-hearted love for Christ. He is seeking after Christ. Who Jesus is is being made known to him, revealed to him. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if we look in Luke chapter 22, um, uh, just a little bit later in this same chapter, we see something that is really important and really interesting. So it's after or near the end of the Lord's Supper time, the final Lord's Supper, Luke 22:31. he says this, Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but in conjunction with what we're talking about here, that's very interesting. Satan was and was successful in seeking after Judas and entering him. But we see this behind the scenes thing from Jesus that Satan also sought Peter. And wanted to destroy him and enter into him. But what happens here? He says he asked that you might be sifted like wheat. How do we separate wheat from the chaff? If you know the old school way of doing that, it's by beating it. Until the two things separate from each other. And so he's asking to abuse Peter. And it says in verse 32, Jesus, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. But Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And so Jesus knew that he was going to fall in temptation. But there is something happening here where Jesus has prayed for him and the authority of Christ Jesus has held off the destroyer. And held him back. This is very similar to the picture that we get in Job. Where again Satan comes to one of the godly people and desires to destroy that person. And Jesus gives, God gives a certain allowance but only so far. And in that preserving the faith and preserving the soul and the life of this person who loves him. And so we must see that our protection from evil comes from the Lord. He is our protection from evil, not any weird talisman or thing like this. The Lord God is our good shepherd, and he is the one that protects us from evil. And as Jesus prayed for Peter, we are instructed by the Lord Jesus to pray against evil and against temptation. This is the last part of the Lord's Prayer, so often neglected. Where the Lord instructs us to regularly and daily pray. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from what? Evil. Evil. I ask you, are you praying like that regularly in your life? Do you pray for your spouse like that? Do you pray for your children like that? Do you pray for your neighbors like that? Are you asking God and pleading with him to protect the people that you know and love from evil? We should be praying like that. Because the Lord hears those prayers and I believe that the Lord has used and answered the prayers of people in my life that love me that have prayed against these things that the Lord has answered those prayers and he has delivered me from evil in many different times. And so it is right that we pray as Jesus prayed for Peter for others that they would be protected and delivered from evil because our protection from evil comes from the Lord. Important point here. Well, when we look at Judas, this is one instance of Satan coming to Judas. But there are two instances in the near narrative of this Lord's Supper where, where Satan is said to come to Judas. So this is once, which is before the Passover meal, And it says here, it talks about him conferring with the chief priests, and I would also like to read from Matthew chapter 26, which is the same instance, but has a quotation that is very telling. Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16 says this, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. What will you give me if I turn him over to you? What's he looking for? Money. What kind of money will you give? How valuable is Jesus to you? Here, we'll give you this 30 pieces of silver. All right, I'll take that. That's that's enough. I'm tired of following this man around. I will betray him to you. And so I believe that what we have going on here is that Satan enters into Judas. This is probably something that he has been scheming about for a long time. Satan enters into him to give him that push to go and actually do the deal and take the money and start the process. But in John 13, 27, we see another time where it says that Satan enters into Jesus. This is mid-Passover meal. And if you go and read the narrative of John of the Passover, it is fascinating. And putting this timeline together blows my mind. Because just before, what I'm getting ready to say, is when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, including Judas, who is there, who washes the feet of the deceiver in his love for him. It's fascinating. It's it's really incomprehensible in a certain way. And then right after that, he says, one of you is going to deceive me. And they look around and they say, who is it? Is it I? Is it I? And John leans over to him and says, Jesus, who's going to deceive you? And he says, who I'm going to give this morsel of bread to is going to deceive me. And he gives it to Judas. And it says at that point, Satan enters into him. And so how could Satan enter into him twice? My understanding of the reconciliation of these two things is related to the nature of Satan that we talked about earlier, that he cannot be in two places at the same time. He is not omnipotent and he is not omnipresent. And it seems to me that at this crucial moment, he is working overtime according to the old saying, if you want something done right, you do it yourself. And so he is literally himself personally overseeing this structured plan that he appears to have to try to drive Jesus to his death. And so my understanding of this is after influencing Judas to go and do this deal of deception, he goes somewhere else. And at the time where it's right for him to step away from the table of the Passover and actually go and do the betrayal, he again enters into him. I believe for the same reason, to press him to get up from that table, Every one of us have been in a place of temptation where we know what we should do and we, we feel this compelling sense that we ought to follow after Christ and we ought to do what is right. And there's a crucial moment where we make the decision where we're either going to sin or we're going to follow after Christ Jesus. And it seems that Satan enters in a second time to press him to get up from that table and to go and to make good on his, his, his deal of betrayal. But twice, Satan influencing Judas Iscariot. And after Judas goes out from the Passover table, he gathers together troops and the chief priests and there's a betrayal at the Garden of Gethsemane. That's going to be a sermon in a few weeks. so I'm going to leave that for there. But where I want to to wrap up our understanding of Judas is what we don't see in the Gospel of Luke. and so I want to touch on it this morning so that we get a complete picture of Judas. And so if you would, uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 tells the the end of the story of Judas. And so I'm going to read it for us here. Matthew chapter 27, verses three through seven. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is this to us? See to it yourself. Verse five. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought And bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So after he sees Jesus condemned... He changes his mind. He comes and he brings the money back, and you have this just tragic, just sad scene. I don't want, that. I don't want this money. I, what I did was wrong. I should never have done this. And they, in their hard-hearted hypocrisy, say, oh, we can't take blood money in here. What are you doing bringing this in here? When they just gave it to him, their, their hypocrisy knows no bounds. And so he just, he throws it into the temple and runs out and just agony of soul. He is deeply sorrowful, sorrowful unto death and he goes and commits suicide. And so increasingly frequent in our day, we hear stories of suicide, of of sadness, of utter dejection, where people don't know what to do with the sorrows of their life and it turns inward into themselves until they, they have nothing else to do and they take their own life. Recently we've read two stories of this in the news of people that seem to have everything, but again, like we said earlier, only God knew their heart, and they knew their heart. Chelsea Christ, 2019, Miss USA, at the pinnacle of everything that she hoped to be, only a few years later, earlier, a few months ago, jumped from the high stories of her Manhattan condo headfirst to kill herself. Just a few days ago, uh, Katie Meyer, the Stanford women's soccer goalie, a a prestigious school, prestigious, successful team, a young woman that seemed to have everything going for her. They have not yet released exactly how this happened, but it's been ruled uh, absolutely a suicide. And these are tragic, tragic, heartbreaking situations. And I want this morning, because what happens with Judas is we get to see all that leads up in Judas's life to this culminating sad end. And so I want us to look at a scripture that is powerful in describing the difference between what we see in the life of Judas and what we see in the life of Peter. And it is 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 9 is one of these, one of these verses that unlocks and helps us understand what is happening here. Paul writes this, he says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so we have two different things going on here. We have Paul saying, I preach the gospel to you, and in preaching the gospel to you, conviction comes over your soul, real conviction. It's a sadness because you know that you're a sinner and you know that what has happened in your life is wrong and terrible, but it is a godly grief because it leads to what? it leads to repentance, it leads to a turning away from these evil things which then allows for belief and our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and then that leads to eternal life. So there is a progression that God is working in our souls that we hear the gospel, we are convicted of our sins and this conviction leads to repentance and repentance leads to faith and faith leads to eternal life in Jesus. The other way around is temptation. And if we've seen in the life of Judas, temptation and guilt and the guilt crushes us down. But there is no turning away from that guilt because we either know nothing about Christ or our hearts are hardened against him. We refuse to believe in who he is. And so we again begin to accuse ourselves and outside people and outside evil begins to accuse us and our hearts become tortured and it gets worse and worse and it's a worldly grief that is a downward spiral that leads to despair and it never leads to repentance and ultimately it leads to death. And this is what we see in the life of Judas. It is absolutely important that when we see people in a, a spiral of grief, that we have the, the spiritual diagnosis to look at them and say, what is happening according to this verse? Do I see, has this person ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do they know who Jesus is at all? If not, you must go tell them. You must bear witness that there is a way that their sins can be forgiven, that they can turn away, they can be forgiven of these things and enter into life. It's imperative that you tell them who Jesus is. And then that you pray for them and that you plead for them that this grief might be turned into repentance that leads to life. And so in Judas, what we see is unbelief and then suicide and then damnation. And it's very important, I will say this, every time I mention suicide in the Bible, the Roman Catholic Church for a long time has put out a, a doctrine that does not have anything to do with the Bible, the idea that suicide equals damnation. That's not what we see in the Bible. What we see is that unbelief equals damnation. Those who finally and utterly reject the salvation of God will not enter into his salvation. But what we see in this passage from Paul is that unbelief leads to this despair and this sadness and this downward spiral. And so often, I believe the normal path of these things for those who commit suicide is that they have just reached an utter bottom and they have no idea what else to do with their grief and it turns inwards until they kill themselves. But I absolutely also believe that there are exceptions. There are, there are ways in which a person can reach despair even unto death and yet their heart still believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to look at each one of these things particularly and carefully to see what is going on. But it is a pattern that we should not overlook and that we should take very seriously in the lives of others that we see despair entering into their lives. Well, when we compare Judas to Peter one more time, it's very important. Because at the same exact time, Peter enters into temptation. And what does he do? He fails miserably. He curses Jesus and curses, I don't I don't know that man. And you put whatever it says, he curses and then denounces Jesus. It's horrible. It's terrible. Three times he does it. Jesus looks right at him as he's walking to his cross. And it just crushes him. It says he went out and he wept bitterly. He's just in anguish of soul. You know, how, three years, how could, I, how could I have done this? Like, what is wrong with me? But yet, that is a sorrow that leads to repentance. Confession, and Jesus comes back to him. And it is such a beautiful passage. Read it this afternoon in the last chapter of John, where Jesus is with Peter on the beach. And this takes us back to where we started, about where is your heart? Does your heart love Jesus or is your heart hardened against Jesus? Because after this temptation, after this great failing, Jesus is sitting on the beach with Peter eating some breakfast, eating some fish at breakfast, and he says, Peter, do you what? Do you love me? He doesn't say, Peter, you're now going to do penance. Go out and do all these things for me, and when you do all these things, come back and then maybe I'll forgive you. It's not what he says. He says, Peter, do you love me? Is your heart for me? And what does Peter say? He says, you know I love you. Like Jesus already knows. Just like he knew Judas's heart, he knows Peter's heart. He says, you know that I love you. And he asks him again, Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know I love you. And the third time, as, as he denied him three times, he affirms him three times. Do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know I love you. You know all things. And each time he says, go and feed my sheep, go and feed my sheep. He sends him back out on mission. So a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life, and then goes out in mission for Christ. And so he is fully restored through the cross of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that comes to us by faith. And so I would close with these things. Jesus does know all things. He knows whether you love him or you don't love him. And I call for you to love Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, and strength, to cut away other things from your life, especially the love of money, and especially the love of the things of this world, as they will impede your love for Christ. Let Judas stand as a great warning to us all. Which direction are you going? Is your heart love? loving Jesus or is it cold and unbelief? And I would remind our, those of you this morning that have walked with Christ for a long time and have known him for many years, that you should be strengthened by this and not fear evil. We've talked about Satan and we've talked about evil this morning, but those of us that are in Christ, the scriptures tell us that we are more than conquerors Why are we more than conquerors? Not because of our great strength or because of anything that we bring to the table, but through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on that cross, as I cannot wait to preach in some weeks to come, Satan thought he had won the victory. He thought he had killed the Son of God. But instead, out of that comes our salvation as he overcomes death and rises from the dead on the third day. And so the eternal life that we have, the hope that we have in overcoming evil is not our own hope. It is by faith through grace because Jesus has accomplished our salvation. And so may we rejoice in this. And I'm going to close with Colossians 1.13. He, or Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. No longer in a kingdom of darkness, but in a kingdom of light. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and the record of it, and these are this is just a a, a warning. Hearing everything about Judas, you look at it and you just, we say, God, help us not to be that way. Help us not to have a hard, unbelieving heart. Help us not to love the things of this world. Help us never to, to turn away from the work of God that is right in front of us and instead turn away to this world. Lord, I pray this morning for the unbelieving that may be here or may hear this sermon in some way. I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit, that you would work upon their heart and bring conviction that they might turn away from death, that there might be repentance and faith, that they would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that in his name they would find life and forgiveness. Lord, I pray for us, those of us that know you as Savior, that we would be warned by these things and that we would refocus our hearts upon heavenly things and upon Jesus our Savior, that we would never take for granted what it is to be counted with Christ and to have our names written in the book of life and to have an inheritance in heaven. And I pray that we would live for you and that we would go out as light in darkness in this world, people filled with hope and joy and peace and kindness and the fruits of your spirit to where it is known that we are followers of Christ and that we affect those that are around us in the world. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.